My name is Audrey, and I'm a member of the Rock Springs Al-Anon family group. And the most important thing you'll probably hear me say is that I'm also a member of worldwide fellowship called Al-Anon and uh, Al-Anon family groups, and I'm uh, glad to be a part of that. Now, I'm nervous, so just give me a minute or two, and I said my prayers and all of that good stuff and meditated and all of that before I left, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to be up here, and I don't think God does either, so <laughs> we're just going to do this together. And I don't know why I'm nervous, because I'm with people that I love and care about, and some I just tolerate. Uh, I'll tell you, I made a, made, a, made a mistake one time, years ago, and I said I'd follow a little redhead anywhere, and when she called me and asked me to come and speak, I told her, no, I've talked in Wyoming, you know, pretty often, so I just, you know, I've why don't we get somebody else now? If you need somebody else, I can name somebody. And she said, no, we want you to come. And so I said, well, I don't think so. And she said, I thought you said that you'd follow a red, follow me anywhere and follow a redhead anywhere. And I said, well, I, I did. And she said, well, then I want you to come up here and talk. Now, I don't know much about gambling, but I, my dad gambled enough that I think that's calling in a marker. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think so anyway. But uh, I am glad to be here. I'm always glad after I get this over with, and this is the first time I've ever had to do one on the last day. So just bear with me. Um, I'd like to thank you for being here this morning because uh, this, this is the only reason that I'm here. I needed you. You might not have needed me this weekend, but I really needed you. And I won't go into details over that, but um, you're a blessing to me this morning to see each one of you here. And if nobody's told you this morning that they love you, I do. And I may not know you, but I still love you because my son's still out there one of my sons is still out practicing and you'd think after all these years he'd learned how to do it well enough that he wouldn't want to do it anymore but he had three years of sobriety and it was wonderful and uh, he was the one that I had so much trouble with and Al-Anon and people like you coming to conferences like this is what helped me keep my sanity while I was going through that period of my life. And of course my husband, Carl, and I can identify with June. She even got up here and called my husband's name, you know, several times. So, And I always thought, somebody said, nobody can tell their story like you can, you know. You have to tell your own story. And she got up here and told a better story than I can tell about my life. And so I thought, oh, God, after her, I don't even need to talk. But it's right, I have to do my own. And uh, But anyway, Carl sends his love and says he wished that he could be here because there's a lot of people here he just would love to visit with this weekend and and get himself pumped back up again, you know. And uh, that's what alcoholics do, it seems like. They 
I came across a, one of our members of the Rock Springs Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous group. And our Al-Anon meeting is in um, the other room, so we have to go through AA's room to get into ours. And I come across him yesterday afternoon, and I was getting ready to hear the Alateen speaker, which she did a wonderful job. And I'd like to thank her for, for doing that, if she's here. And I told him, come on, go listen to the speaker. And he said, oh, no. no. And I said, well, why not? And he said, oh, I, I don't listen to them. And I said, don't you think it's about time? <laughs> I don't take control or anything, you know. <laughs> but he said, no. I said, come on opened the door and he of course he followed me on in here he's a pretty neat guy we we love each other a lot he was one of the first guys I met when we moved to Wyoming and uh, he was going to the group that had about five members at that time and <clears throat> he's helped save my mine and Carl's marriage several times you know he'd come just at the right time when I was about ready to kill him <laughs> or he was about ready to you know, tell me to take a hike. Because he used to say, well, you either change your attitude or change your address. And <laughs> I thought about doing that several times, too, but never did it. <laughs> it got so bad one time, I even packed my suitcase, put it under my bed, and I said, went out the hedge and told him, I'm leaving. He said, okay. I said, I really mean it, I'm leaving. He said, okay. <laughs> And I wanted him to beg me to stay, you know, but of course he didn't. And uh, he said, I thought people who were married could sit down and talk to each other about problems. And I said, I can't talk to you. You think you know everything. And of course, I didn't think I knew everything. But um, I think we, that's where we're alike, uh, that at times we do. And that's whenever I met my first first lady alcoholic and I went in and I called her I'd met her at a meeting open meeting on Saturday night and I met her and she said um, why don't you come on over to my house you know and let's talk about it I went over to her house and of course I was just crying like a baby and she said um, come on in, let's have a cup of coffee. And I sat down, do you want to talk about it? And I said, I, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't think I can. And she said, well, honey, you don't have to talk about it. And nobody ever told me that. You know, they always wanted to hear every little detail. And I told her, I just don't think I can live like this the rest of my life. And she said, honey, you don't have the rest of your life. You just have today. And can you live with it today? And I said, I don't know. And she said, why don't you go back home and go to bed and sleep on it? And in the morning, you know, if you feel like leaving, take your little old suitcase and go. But she was wise enough, and I thought she was the wisest woman I ever met, and I loved her dearly. Tried to use it for a sponsor, but she wouldn't let me because she knew that, need, knew that I needed an Al-Anon sponsor. And... Um, anyway, she, you know, after that I did go home and go to bed and, and I woke up and sure enough I felt different about it. Still was mad at him, but 
I don't know, I could just get mad at him for just sometime just looking at him. Because, you know, he knew so much and I knew so little. And, and um, excuse me, I'm going to take my shoes off or I'm going to wobble up here all the time. Okay. I know that's not ladylike. <laughs> now, my mother would roll over in her grave, you know, if she knew that I was doing this. But anyway, I'll, I'll finally get to my story. I, I was uh, born in a town called Coffeeville, Kansas. It was a pretty small town. And I'm the oldest of 11 children. Uh, my dad was a drinker, and this morning I woke, or yesterday morning at 5.30, I woke up and was doing all my thinking. And when I went back to sleep, I kind of dreamed of the dream of my dad when I first noticed that he took a drink and how happy he was when he took a drink. And this was in Miami, Oklahoma. He was a miner there and every day we were so glad. I must have been about four or five years old, something like that. I was really young at the time. And we would line the streets. All the women would line the streets. They would fix dinner you know, and have it ready to put on the table and then go out and line the streets and here come the miners up the street. We had run out and grabbed their hand and we were all so happy. And then one day we heard, you know, I heard the whistle blow, but it was not that whis that, the whistle for the shift to change. It was an emergency whistle. And everybody ran to the streets, you know, and I ran the street with mom and People were crying and, you know, things like that. And I said, Mom, what's the matter? What's the matter? You know, I knew something was wrong. And she said, well, honey, somebody's down in the mine. And the mine caved in. And, of course, immediately, you know, we thought it was maybe my dad was one of them, but he just happened to be coming up as it was uh, filling in down below. And Daddy didn't come home that night you know he went straight to the bar I'd never seen him do that before and he went straight to the bar and I didn't even know if he drank her you know this is my first remembrance of it but I know mom was always scared um, to be alone uh, because dad was gone so much and so after he got through drinking well then he came back home and we moved back to Coffeeville and everything went on just like you know, nothing ever happened. And Mom didn't talk about Dad's drinking. And I loved Daddy when he drank because he was happy. And when he was sober, he was not happy. And Mom was not happy whenever he was sober because he was home. And when he was drinking and away, even though she cried at night sometimes, you know, because she didn't know what was happening to him, we had fun with her because she loved to, you know, we all loved to sing and we'd get to church and we'd get around the piano and everybody would sing and just have good old times, picnics and things like that. But when Daddy was home, we couldn't do that. Everything had to go back and everybody had to be quiet and all that kind of stuff. But Daddy must have been a periodic because he would take off every time he drank and we didn't see him until he came home to sober up. 
And when he would do that, we didn't have any place to live or eat. Usually it was on a payday. And I don't know why alcoholics always want to get drunk on a payday, you know, before they pay the bills. And uh, I never could understand that. Pay the bills and then what you have left, go get drunk, you know. <laughs> but uh, later on I understood why. But we, you know, we kind of lived like that and we had to be, um, the Salvation Army helped us an awful lot uh, by helping us uh, to have food and some clothing. My mother worked to help them a lot, an awful lot too. And, and in my later years, I did. I gave time to the Salvation Army by taking on eight incorrigible teenage girls and I don't know why, because I had two that I couldn't even take, boys at home that I couldn't even take care of, because I was having trouble with them. But at that time I helped, um, you know, helped them too, to kind of pay them back for the things that they did for other people. But Mom kept us going to church there, and I was embarrassed to go there, because all, everybody I knew went to different churches. Only people who didn't have anything went to the Salvation Army, I thought. And the only reason they went was to get something. And uh, you can tell how wrong I was there. So Mom and I would, uh, there was a man that had some houses and we would uh, clean these houses. Every time Daddy would leave, well, we'd go and tell him we don't have a place to live and can we rent your house? And he'd always put us in this little cement house down by the highway. I hated that place. It was about three rooms, and and uh, we had a bed in the living room and a bed, two beds in the bedroom, and and I hated that too. And I just, you know, I just grew up hating a lot of things. I hated my mom and dad, but I loved them, and I didn't know that I didn't really hate them. I just didn't like what was going on. I didn't like what was going on. And my dad would come back. Mom would let him come back. And this was the last time she decided she wasn't going to let him come back. And he came to me and he started telling me, well, I'm just going to go down and drown myself in the river. You know, if she doesn't let me come back, you better go talk to her. And I just hated myself because I had to go and talk to her and talk her into letting him come back. But yet, I, you know, I loved him too. I didn't want him to commit suicide. I was scared, you know. So let him come back, and things just got worse and worse every time. And uh, it seemed like the drunks were getting closer and closer together. And and uh, I'd run down, call the police on him because he'd come in, and, and Mom would say something. It seemed like every time that he left and came back, why? The minute that doorknob would turn, her mouth would start. Now, my mother was not one to use foul language or anything like that. She was strictly a lady. But when it came to Dad, she wanted to know where he was, why he was gone so long, where had he been, as if that would help anything, you know, finding out where he had been. But she knew where he had been. And this one time I saw her, and I'd never seen her angry before, but she was sitting on a little chair out front of the house telling him he couldn't come in and he started laughing at her. 
She grabbed him by the ears and beat his head on the side of that cement now. And I saw a mother that I'd never seen before. <laughs> and it kind of scared me, you know, but yet I thought he deserved it because, you know, after all. And uh, anyway, that's when I decided. I've, you know, I've had it. I'd try to go to school and she'd send one of the kids down to the bus stop to get me and bring me back and say, well, I didn't, hadn't finished the dishes that day or something like that. And I left school. And this one day she sent, it, sent, her, sent me down because one of the kids was sick and I'd have to stay home and help take care of them while she went to clean somebody's house so we'd have something to to eat, and I just thought, well, I might as well be home all the time anyway. I just don't bother going to school. So I told her, I said, I'm not going to school. I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to, so you can stay home with the kids. And she tried to get me not to, and um, the grandmother that didn't like me very well, she never did like me. Um, she told mom, said, you're making a mistake letting that kid make up her own mind about not going to school and mom said well she's gonna do it anyway and I had three uncles that I just dearly loved three on my mom's side and three on my dad's side and they just they really liked me and took really good care of me and one of them was about three years older than I was and he's the one who taught me about men you know what at the age of 13 and uh, he just said uh, you know, a lady does this, and a lady, uh, you're not a lady. You're a child. You're still a child. And said, uh, his mother would tell me, a lady doesn't do this. A lady doesn't cross her legs. A lady doesn't take her shoes off in public. <laughs> a lady doesn't uh, swear. A lady doesn't, all of these things that I wasn't doing anyway. But she just, uh, you know, she'd just do that, you know. She didn't like me, and so she just tried to put me down every time I came close to her, and I was only 13. But anyway, I decided to go, on, go to work, and I did. I got two jobs. I got two part-time jobs, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me out of the house. And even though I really missed going to school because I loved, um, <coughs> I loved writing, uh, I couldn't, you know, I don't have very good English. Um, and when I was in second grade, I had a, a teacher use me for an example for four or five kids in her room. And we would get up to give a talk or something, and she, would, she said to me, I guess she was just tired of all of it, that I was the one that was, doing the, was reading my story. And I said, uh, um, you know, like that, and she said, quit grunting like a pig, said, you know, I never talked again, never did. And when I was in the seventh grade, and that's why I love school so much, the seventh grade English teacher, she really took a liking to me, and she said, Audrey, you can write so well on paper. I said, why don't you read it, just so I can give you a good grade? I have to give you an F if you don't. And I told her, no, I can't do that. She said, will you do it for me just once, just once, and let's see if you can. And so I did, and gosh, I got an A, you know. And uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed it, but I found out that there are some people in the world that cares for you, 
but you had to do good in order for them to care for you and like you. So I would work my head off for a boss and boy, you know, they liked me because I worked my tail off. And uh, just things like that, or if I'd go do something for somebody, and that's how I met elderly people that I dearly love. Um, now I are one, <laughs> but um, I loved her, be you know, I loved um, elderly people because they needed help, and they were grateful for all the help that she gave them. And so I got love and affection from people I didn't even know instead of people that were inside my, my household or in the family. And uh, finally my dad got sugar diabetes. And I'll tell you one thing about my dad and I. We were buddies and I loved him and I knew that. I didn't like what he was doing, but we fished, we hunted and we did all kinds of things like that. I did not know I was a girl until I was 13. Yeah. Did not except what my grandmother would keep saying to me and I'd think, well, why in the world she's saying that? And Daddy, oh, there was a young boy that went with us one time and I guess I, you know, I went to the bushes like everybody else when you have to go and do something. Um, and evidently, one of the guy's son kind of meandered over that way. And I remember my dad coming over there to me, and he was so angry. And I don't know if he had said anything to the guy or not. So a stay, I don't know. Anyway, he took me home after they had caught their squirrels and their coons and stuff. And um, he told Mom that she can't go with me anymore. And I cried because I couldn't figure out what I'd done. Just tell me what I had done, you know. That, uh, and I didn't know the guy had kid had followed me over there. And so from he kept saying, "You're a girl. You're a girl. You know. You just need to be doing girl things." And I couldn't understand that because I always wanted to be a boy. I was always under the hood of a car or you know over at the rodeo helping them with the stock and. I thought of June, too, you know. My husband's a cowboy, too. And, uh, or was a cowboy. And uh, I loved, you know, I loved animals, and I loved my uncles, and one of my uncles was a bronc rider, and he probably knew some of the people that you know. And he was good, and he won a lot of, of prizes for it. And, uh, but anyway, I stayed with them most of the time, and they're the ones, like I said, that taught me how to be a girl. You don't wear loud perfume. Men don't want somebody that they got to say to talk to you. They want to say, come closer, I want to talk to you. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't know what he was talking about, but later on I found out. Um, but I loved them, and they were my family as far as I was concerned, and they still are today. We're just closer than brother, you know, brother and sister rather than uncle and niece. But, and here I am wandering off again. Um, anyway, when I was 13, I found out I was a girl. I noticed that my dad, every time he'd leave and come back, He'd give Mom a kiss, 
you know, sometime or other when she'd let him get close to her. And every time he did, we came up with a new baby. <laughs> and I just got to thinking, you know, when I get to thinking, I'm dangerous. But I found out that I think it's the kissing that's doing that. And so I made up my mind I wasn't ever going to let anybody kiss me. You know, and besides, if you're a, you know, proper girl, you won't let them anyway. But, uh, so I'd made up my mind to that, and I didn't want to be a girl anyway, but when I became a girl, I just went all out for it. <laughs> Did the things that girls do and all that kind of junk. But still yet, every now and then I had to crawl under the car with one of my uncles, you know, to do something. And, but most of it, I think, was the talking. We could talk. We could just really talk about things. And uh, I, this one time my mother came in and she said, Audrey, you want to take two kids and go over to your grandmother's? And, <coughs> and uh, Dad will be home after a while and, and he'll come and get you. And I told her, well, you come with us. You come with us. Because every time Mom had a baby, when we came back from grandma's. But if she went with us, she wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't have one when we got back. <laughs> and every time she'd say, no, you gotta go to your grandma's. I knew when I got home, I was gonna have another one to take care of. <clears throat> and that, you know, she never, nobody explained the facts of life to me or anything. Uh, my first husband, he had to explain them to me. And I thought that I wanted children married a fellow that I, you know, respected, but I never, you know, I never loved, didn't know what love was, and I still really don't know what love is, only that uh, I believe love is when you, uh, it's kind of like that self, unselfish devotion to others, I think, is a true love uh, that I've found in Al-Anon. And in the Alcoholics Anonymous program is the same way that one person talking to another person. And uh, that's the only real true love I've ever found until I married Carl. And I think that was, because I haven't wanted to really take off. I just want to threaten him with it. <laughs> but <clears throat> at that time, you know, I just never really felt loved, loved except you know, by a chosen few. Um, I moved to uh, um, Texas, went to work at, in Texas with a couple of cousins, and I had met this fellow uh, through them. He was a good friend of theirs. And my cousin told me, Audrey, you're 22 years old, almost. Said, um, don't you... What was it they used to say about people who uh, didn't get married? You're going to be an old maid. And I said, well, I don't care if I'm an old maid, you know. And I, after all I'd seen in marriages, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so she kept talking, and I thought, well, it is about time. I may get too old to have children, and I would like to have a couple of kids. As a matter of fact, the reason I had to have kids is because a gal in San Diego, uh, some kind of a psychic or something, it was at a, uh, had an entertainment 
place uh, had told me, you're going to have two children, they're going to be two boys, and they're both going to be born on the 28th. And I thought, mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I have to have two kids anyway. She said I was going to have them, so <laughs> that's a pretty good reason. And, of course, the guy was, you know, he loved, he really cared about me. That's one thing I can say. He really did. And so we got married, and he assured me that, you know, the maybe love would come later. And I, would, I really wanted to love him because he was a nice guy, one of those kind of guys you'd like to marry. Sure enough, I did have two sons. They were born on the 28th, January 28th and March 28th, and my birthday is February 28th. And so, but I'm sure, you know, I still don't go in for that kind of stuff. <laughs> but finally, I just had to tell him, I, I can't live like this. Because all I do, I'd even stay up at night ironing until every little thing was done before I'd go to bed and make sure he was asleep before I went in there. And I thought, that's no way to live. And so I decided to take the kids and move to back to wonderful Coffeeville. And he, of course, he didn't want me to, and I told him, well, I'm going to anyway. I'm going to visit for a while, and I'll be back, maybe. And I saw that guy standing there, and he knew I was never coming back because he was standing there, tears running down his face at the train depot when we left, and I felt really bad. But I thought, he doesn't deserve to be treated like this, you know. He really doesn't deserve it. And so I did. I, for 11 and a half years, I took care of the boys and raised them. And during that period of time, they became my problem. Mom and Dad was no longer my problem, but the boys were. And they started getting into pro uh, trouble and everything. And I don't know how in the world you could be an alcoholic if you never saw anybody drink. I never allowed anybody in my home that drank because they were not going to be raised like my brothers and sisters. They were not going to be like my brothers and sisters. They were not going to be going to jail and, you know, getting into all kinds of trouble. Need I say, they followed the footsteps, you know, right in the footsteps of, of what was going on with my brothers. And, you know, I blame myself. I just beat myself all the time, um, just beat myself up. And I kept thinking, well, what did I do? What didn't I do? Oh, well, I've done this, you know, and just took my inventory all the time, I guess, but I wasn't the best person in the world to take it. But I just said, I'm going to start going to church, and because I, I give up on God. I started to going, back, going back to church, and I decided I'll go back to the Salvation Army, and I got involved there. And, of course, like everything I ever did, is I get started with it, and by golly, I go all the way, but I just keep on taking more things and more things and more things, and I had less time for my kids, you know, because to get rid of that problem of what was going on with the kids, I had to do a lot of other things to keep my mind off of it. And so what do I do? I neglect my kids, and all the time going to church, and thinking I was a, you know, a good Christian. But I had those kids in there every time the, you know, the door was open. 
and just could not, you know, could not seem to be happy. And my minister told me one time, Audrey said, you're the most miserable Christian I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why he said that, you know, because I didn't know anything about being happy. Let's put it that way. And never smiled, never smiled, never talked or anything like that, you know. The only thing I could do is yeah, yeah at my kids for what they were doing or not doing or because they didn't do it perfectly and perfect was my way. And that's why my brothers and sisters always disliked me very uh, <clears throat> profusely at one time is because they used to call me Miss Perfect. That, and two, I had to raise them, you know. So every one of them had to do just what I told them to do. And mom was not their mother. I was their mother. She was just the one that had them. Uh, but I raised them until I got, you know, even I went, got married, came back and started with them again. And started taking care of them again. And um, it was not a, a very happy life for them or for me. I can say it was just not a happy life for all of us at that time. And I look back, you know, whenever I go to Saturday night meetings in Rock Springs, and I see those people come in, and they don't know if they're going to be able to stay or not, you know, and, and uh, but they make it, you know, one day, just one day. And I, you know, you love them so much because you think, gosh, you know, it's just awesome that they can stay away from one drink when they have a disease called alcoholism that's, you know, tearing families apart. And you don't know how in the world they can make it, but here they come, you know, one, two, three, four, you know it. They have a lot of ears like John does sitting back there. And like Don, 50 years. Tell you, that's awesome. But, um, you know, I... I just look at what, uh, you know, the devastation that's on that family. That family is still sitting back in, Rock, in uh, Coffeyville, Kansas, living like they did, blaming everything on mom and daddy. If it wasn't their, you know, if it hadn't been for them, they wouldn't be like they are. And even their grandchildren say, well, if grandpa hadn't done so-and-so, they didn't even know grandpa. Grandpa died before they got there. So somebody had to tell them. You know, my dad died as a result of, uh, well, he had diabetes, but he could not stay sober. And he, he wasn't drunk all the time, but when he drank, he drank. When he worked, he worked. But, um, but the grandchildren are still doing it. My sister said to me not too long ago, said something about her son, and said, my boy, uh, my kid and I said he isn't a kid he's 35 years old you know and he's still drinking and all of that kind of stuff and and she said well if daddy hadn't I said he didn't even know daddy you know it's about time we get a little bit honest about it and that's something I never did and I was glad of that I never blamed anything on my mother or my daddy but I sure blamed it on my kids if my kids didn't act like that I wouldn't be here you know, and I wouldn't be in the condition that I'm in. But about 11 and a half years after 
I moved to Coffeyville. I uh, was got sick at work, had to go home. And they, uh, the doctor told me, you can't go and work at that job anymore. I said, it's going to kill you if you do. And I said, I have to work because I have to take care of those kids. And he said, no, I said, you can't work. And said, I'm, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to send you to welfare. And I said, no, you're not sending me to welfare either. Because my mother never had to use welfare when we were growing up. Uh, you know, we thought of that. We worked and had this one fellow, you know, we could work on his houses and make enough to make ends meet. And um, so I sure wasn't going to do it now. And he, but he just went right over my head and did it anyway. And he gave, uh, sent a letter to the place where I worked and told him I couldn't work anymore. And so he put me on welfare and best thing that ever happened to me because I had a lot of, you know, pride, but it was the wrong kind of pride. <coughs> and, oh, I hate that part of my life. But anyway, I uh, went to the welfare office and this lady that was in the welfare office that hated my dad with a passion and he hated her. <coughs> I liked, I really liked her. I, you know, she was pretty rough and everything with people that I felt sorry for after she got through talking to them. And I thought, I'm next. <laughs> and uh, I went in and she talked to me and she said, uh, Audrey said, I think you've got a lot going for you said, why don't you go back to school? I said, well, I can't do that. I've got two boys at home and I've got to work. And she said, no, you're not working now, remember? And uh, so I finally accepted, okay, I'm just working here for a short period of time until I can go back to work. And what she did, she made me kind of a runner. Um, I'd pick up envelopes and take them over to the courthouse and everything so people could have their checks. Maybe it was someone who, you know, needed a check in the middle of the month or something like that. So I would do those things <coughs> and make, um, <coughs> make money there. Excuse me. <coughs> Where I... <coughs> Goodness. where I didn't have to um, <clears throat> take so much from welfare and so I felt better about myself and so she was responsible the next day when I came in she was responsible for getting me into a, taking my GED test and um, <clears throat> and getting me into a Votech school where I took a, a job for the Votech school too in filing when I finally learned how to file. And <clears throat> so, you know, I can see God in my life, you know, working through people from way back when that I, it just seemed like that people helped me all along and I thought I was doing it all myself. And she 
I didn't know that her husband was an Alcoholics Anonymous at the time because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I knew what drunks were, but I didn't know what an alcoholic was. And he, you know, uh, she, her husband even would come up there and sit and he'd talk, kind of talk to me a little bit. And we'd visit a little bit until I had to pick up some envelopes and go. And, and I found out he was going to some meetings that, you know, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe somebody would be interested in, you know, doing that. But anyway, I forgot all about it. And uh, later on, she got into Al-Anon. But I really liked her, and, and um, she really helped me an awful lot. And at the Votech School, one time they had uh, basic education uh, courses for adults. And um, they were asking all of the businesses to go to the Votech School and hire people from there. Carl says he came in and he said, I want that one. And I had my back to him, you know, like this, you know, typing and everything. And he, uh, so I know he didn't, but I thought it made a good story at the time, you know, to tell me later. <clears throat> so I went to work with him for him too. I was working part-time at a K&S oil company and went to work for him at uh, income tax uh, H&R block. And we got to be good friends, just, you know, well, again, buddy, buddy, that was, I, I always, I don't know, I gravitate toward men, and it's not, you know, an attraction or anything, but it's, I really identify with them because I guess I was raised almost by seven uh, uncles. And <clears throat> so it took me a long time in Al-Anon before I could talk to women because I thought they were just gabby old people that wanted to carry tails around, you know. And it took me a long time to find out you could trust them. And anyway, I went to work for him, and I kept seeing Strand, this guy come in every day and sit down in the back of the back behind me, where I was working, and I'd just say hello to him. And one time I said to Carl, I said, "Why does he come in here every day and just sit, and do nothing?" He said, "Well, he's helping me." I said, he's helping you. How's he helping you? He said, well, he's helping me because I'm an alcoholic. I need to work with other drunks to stay sober. And I said, well, he's not drunk. He's just sitting there. And he said, well, he, he's just coming off of one, so he's helping me. And I, you know, and it just went right over my head. I thought, oh, isn't that wonderful? He's so good, you know. <laughs> to help all these people because I you know there were several of them that came in and out but finally you know our friendship grew into more than just friendship and we decided we really cared about each other and even though I was having all time kinds of trouble with my kids and I never told him about it um, he decided why he'd take on a ready-made family and we got married and had a little baby and moved to Wyoming all in the same year. And uh, I didn't think that could be done, but it was, did. And we got to Wyoming and all hell broke loose. 
I mean, everything started to happen. He was yapping at the kids, and I was yapping and at the kids because, you know, don't bother him. Here was his daddy again, you know. They'd come into the house, and now you kids, you be quiet. Don't make him mad. Don't, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I stayed, you know, I was in the bathroom most of the time, just sick at my stomach from nerves um, because I was just, you know, I was so caught up in it. I told Carl, I said, I don't think this is going to work. I said, I better, uh, I think I'll just take the kids and leave. See, that's always my story. Take the kids and go back to Coffeyville, Kansas. Wonderful place. And um, anyway, he said, now, you know, if we're going to make it, you're going to have to go to Alateen or Al-Anon. And I said, Al-Anon? What's Al-Anon? He, so he told me what it was. And I still didn't get what he was talking about. I thought, nothing's wrong with me. It's wrong with you. I wouldn't be having trouble with those kids if it wasn't for you, you know. And because he would, well... I don't know, they were kind of jealous, the kids and he was, you know, they were kind of batting heads that way. And of course my kids weren't, one of them was getting in trouble and the other one was on the way, so, uh, you know, and he knew more about it than I did. I couldn't see it because they were my kids. And I didn't buy them out of trouble. I, I, Carl and I did that later on, but, um, Finally, I just, I'd made up my mind I'm going to leave in January, and I told him I'm going to leave in January. And of course, the kids were happy, and uh, I was unhappy, and Carl said, well, don't you think we better talk about this? And, no. <laughs> you know, and of course, I couldn't have told him then what I told him after, you know, later on, but that's the way I'd always solved my problems, was leaving just go someplace else and with him it just wouldn't work he wouldn't let it be he said uh, I want you to go with me this weekend so we went to I went to an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with him and I met a lady there she was not an AA member or an, was not an AA member or an al member at the time but we, they were meeting in her house the alcohol the alcoholics were and I said to him what am I doing here these guys you know this sounds like my dad you know what are what am I doing here and he said because I want you to you know get an Al-Anon group started I said I can't do that I don't know a thing about Al-Anon he said you got a book in there why don't you read it and sure enough one of his friends had given me a one day at a time book and uh, I'd never read it, but, you know, because the problem wasn't mine. And so anyway, we went to, started going every Saturday night, and I, I loved those guys. And that's when I first met John. And he's Indian, cowboy. I don't know what I got for cowboys, but June, I agree. They're great. But... Anyway, I just, you know, I couldn't get that in my head. I can't lecture. I can't talk to people. Uh, and this and this and this. All those I can'ts came back again. And he said, well, 
if we're going to stay married, you're going to have to go to Al-Anon. And if you don't get one started, you better see about getting one, somebody else getting one started. And uh, a gal came, who was an alcoholic, came to AA meetings, and she had uh, talked to me several times about getting one started. And I told her I can't do it. And so she, she and a, finally a man came that was coming to our, uh, coming to open meetings, and he was would be an, a member of Al-Anon later on. And they sent in and registered our group, and we started having meetings. And we used my one day at a time book because that's the only literature we had. And but still, yet nothing, you know, it's still them. It's not me. And. So I thought everything just fall in place. Now I, you know, we got that group started, and so we started having meetings. And they said, Audrey, I think you should do the meeting this week. And I did the meeting this week. And they said, Well, you did it so good. Why don't you do the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one? And I thought, Well, I, you know, that's pretty good. You know, I, they must like it really well. I thought, but I didn't know. And this little woman that I had met that gave me the book. She's now my sponsor, and she's the sweetest thing you ever met. And she can just, you know, I don't know how to explain it, except that she can tell you to go to hell and you'll love every minute of it. <laughs> and she never cusses. She never, you know, she's one of those sweet, gentle people. And, but she sure can. She can tell you, you know. Uh, what you need to hear and and uh, the only thing is she uses herself as an example because each one of us are examples and uh, she used herself as an example like one time I was you know going on and on about something that I couldn't I couldn't get you know and I'd been looking in the books and I'd been reading all of this stuff and I'd say to her you know, I'd say, I just can't get this. And she'd say, Audrey, she said, why are you trying to get in five years what it took me 18 years to get? <laughs> you know, just simple little things like that. And uh, then she'd bring me back to reality. I'd say, I just don't understand. If I could understand why those kids are doing what they're doing, everything would be all right. And um, I'd say, I just can't understand. She'd say, why don't you try accepting them? just like they are. Can't do anything about it anyway, can you? No, but I'm trying, you know. <laughs> and she said, I think you're one of those that need to accept something before you can ever understand it. And by the time you get to where you can understand it, it won't even be important. And I thought, boy, that woman, that woman. She talked kind of with a, you know, funny. And, but um, anyway, my middle boy finally we had to kick him out of the house first we put him in different places and you know spent all kinds of money trying to get him help and couldn't you know nothing helped him he had always run off and and get in trouble again so and I was going through a thing about I was scared to death he was going to die because Wyoming in the winter time is treacherous and and he'd always take off in the middle of the winter with no coat or no, with nothing on and, and get out on the highway and next time I'd know he'd either be in Los Angeles or 
Coffeyville, Kansas, or somewhere, you know, calling up, uh, can you send me some money or something? We did that a time or two and, and uh, brought him back. We put him in an adolescent center when he was 13. They got him on drugs and, you know, drinking wasn't enough, but um, and that was in Evanston. We took him to Evanston and left him there with a bunch of other kids and he ran away and one little boy liked him, uh, you know, pretty much. So he ran away with him and so he was accused since he was older of, of um, taking the kid with him. And they were going to put him in jail and of course they called us and we went and picked him up and brought him home and put him back in school and finally we got him going to school a little bit and um, this day I came in and he was in the bedroom and it was early afternoon and he said I'm not going to school and I'm not going to work and I told him you'll go to school or you'll work, you'll work or you'll move out. Carl came in and we talked about it and so he went down and talked to him and told him and he still wasn't going and he locked the door in the bedroom downstairs and he said, I'm not going to work and I'm not going to school and you have to take care of me. Carl let him know in uncertain terms that uh, he was the head of that household and that he wasn't going to have some person in some agency downtown telling him that he was going to have to keep a boy in the house that wouldn't work or go to school. And uh, so Carl, he went on left. And I got upstairs and I got thinking about it. I went back down to side, tell him again. Maybe he didn't hear the first time. <laughs> and I told him. And he, um, he just said, told us the same thing. Not going to school and not going to work. And I just told him then, uh, you know, well, you will. And I turned around and started to walk away. And I'm telling you, it's just like I felt completely to pieces. And I was so angry. I don't know where that anger come, but I think I'd always had it inside. And I turned around and I kicked that door down. I don't know how I got the strength to do it, but I did it. And I kicked it down and I started beating on him. And now that kid was six foot uh, something already, because all of our boys in the family is tall. And he got on his knees, and I said, what are you doing down there? And he said, well, beat me on the butt for a change. You're always just beating me on the legs. <laughs> I, you know, and I was so mad, I thought I better not hang around anymore. So I went upstairs, <clears throat> and I was sick. I mean, my insides were just, it was just like I was a raging bull or something. And I thought, I'm going to put him out of my misery. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And I went, stopped as I got into the hall. And the guns were in the closet, and I thought, I'm going to go put him out of my misery. Not one time did I think what that kid was going through. All I thought about was me, 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 you know, and what they were putting me through. They were doing it because I married Carl. That had started before I ever even left Coffeyville. But, you know, I didn't think about that. I just had to have somebody to blame. Anyway, I don't remember it, but I called him. Police. 
and I thought to get him out of the house, I guess, because I went over, the doorbell rang, and there was a big policeman standing at the door, and he said, you called us? And I said, no. And he said, yes, you did. You called us. And I, I guess he could see what I looked like, you know, just <laughs> and well, like the Hulk. Anyway, he came in, and he talked to me a few minutes, and he said, uh, now, Mrs. Budd, I can't do anything about him. He's right. He's underage. Um, he, he'll either have to go to school or go to work. But the problem is your, you and your husband's. But he said, you better calm down. And I thought, you bet. I better calm down. And um, I knew that I didn't call the police on him at that time I called him on myself because somehow some you know I knew what was going to happen if he didn't and so I went back downstairs and I told him you get your clothes and you get out of here now because if you don't I'm going to kill you and I went up and started to do some dishes and he came up those stairs. Now, my boys never lifted, you know, never raised their voices to me. Always yes, no. Always called me mother, you know, just, you know, they had certain things they had to do. The boy came up, and he stood at the top of that stairs, and I'd never seen that look in his eye before. And I said, boy, if you're coming up here to, to get on me, you better kill me, because I'm going to kill you. And that's just the way it was that day standing there. And, and he just kind of looked at me like he didn't know what I was talking about. And I threw that. He took one step, and I threw an aluminum uh, salad bowl like this at him and hit that wall. And it just is about that size now. I still have that, though, for a reminder that I know how I can get if, I'm, if I don't hang in with Alan on. And anyway... You know, he left, and he did. He went to Coffeeville. My relatives started calling me and telling me what a no-good sister I was and what a no-good mother I was because that boy had come down there, and they decided to help him, and he was going to school every day for two weeks. And then it was about three hours later that they called me and said, what are you going to do about Les? said he's down here and he hasn't gone to school for two weeks he's been going in the front door out the back and I said I don't know that problem is yours now <laughs> he's not in Rock Springs he's in Coffeeville and you've got him down there now you you do something with him well naturally he got back in prison again and I had told him I'll never step foot in that in a prison again and I meant it it just tore me up to have to go in there. I went in with my brothers, I went in with my dad, I went in, you know, took my mom to all of these places to give her support. And I refused to go and see my sons again in there. And both of my sons did go back a second time. But the old one was out of the, oldest boy was out of the house and he didn't give us that uh, many problems there. But he was the sweetest, kindest little kid you ever saw. But you give him a drink and he was completely different. Absolutely a change of personality. This other one, he was just no damn good because he was like that when he was sober. You know, the way he was, he 
doing things. And that's what I thought. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, I d found out different. And I'm so glad that, uh, you know, I came to those open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm glad that I still go to open meetings every Saturday night when I can. Um, still yet, because I meet people just like my boys. That's why I'm here today is because I need people like you. And then I always like to remind you that in our um, Al-Anon literature that most of you don't know, except Al-Anon members, there's a paragraph that talks about you having the key to someone's heart. And I'd like to tell you, that's how special you are. That inside you, you know, in your pocket, in your hand, in your tongue, in your heart, you have a key that might open the door to someone's heart and get them into this program. And I think that's what Bill thought too. Don talked about Bill, and I think that's what he, he thought too when they talk about the language of love. And that's one person talking to another one. And you may have that key that nobody else can open. So whenever somebody asks you to come and talk, I hope you will, even though, you know, I never, you know, think I do any good, but it does me good. So that's all I can say is, uh, but you do have the key to somebody's heart, and I hope that you'll be generous with it and open more than one door. Because one of these days, my son works all over the United States now, and even though he's drinking and drugging, he still uh, goes to the bars and everything. And I hope one of these days when you open your door at your meeting, you know, you put out your hand and say, come on in, uh, you're welcome. I hope that's what you'll say to my son when he comes in. And he will, I know he will. Because I told him, you better stop running. God's going to get you. <laughs> he's going to get you. I may be dead when he gets you, but he's going to get you. You know, and, and he calls me once a month, drinking or drunken or sober, but it's always talking. He doesn't get on that, you know, the drunk uh, gabbing and all of that. He just, he's just talking to his mother. And we have a good relationship because he isn't at home. He's married and has three children. He married a girl that has three children, and I dearly love her and those kids. And I dearly love him. I don't like what he does. But I don't have to live with it. He does. And that's why I know one of these days he'll show up at your door. So I hope you'll be there with that key in your hand. And... Um, just a couple of other things. I'm not going to say that. I just, uh, you know, I love you, and I, I, I'd like to tell you that I've been having some um, bad health problems. Have, that makes me where I can't get out of the house. And I went to Mayo's just before we, before I came here, 
And I kept calling uh, Lee in my head, saying, get somebody else to talk, I can't. And because I was on medication, I'm coming off of the medication, and so my memory isn't too good, and, uh, and it makes me, you know, where I'm not quite as spontaneous as I usually am. But, and two days before, I still was going to call her and tell her. And I had somebody call me and talk to me, and when they got through, I knew I had to come. Because it doesn't make any difference what kind of problems I'm having. I need to tell you what Al-Anon's done for me, and it has done so much. It saved my life, probably saved my kids' life too, you know, in the long run. It made a sane person who had to do everything their way and who was really an angry mother and I didn't mind, uh, you know, taking it out on my kids at that time because after all they made me do it. And we've made our amends to each other, spent some good time talking about things, and they always said, oh, Mother, it really wasn't that bad. And I thought, maybe for you, but it was for me. I was ashamed of myself, and I couldn't face myself when I found out in Al-Anon what I had done to those kids. And <clears throat> um, but anyway, I, I uh, like I said, I was sick. And I don't know if it was caused from nerves or what, but there's no cure for it. But there is help. My mother had the same thing, and she died without help. And it was a very pain, it's a very painful disease whenever, you know, when it starts and it's all in the face. And, um, the doctor gave me some glycerol shots while I was at Mayo's, and it was only the Al-Anon program and people who were praying for me in our group. Our group would call and say, we're keeping you in, in our prayers. And let me tell you this, too, how, how dedicated some Al-Anon members are. They brought meetings to my house on Monday night, so I would be sure and have a meeting a week. And it was kind of, you know, I thought that was a wonderful thing. That was just a wonderful thing to happen to me, that they would do it for me. Now, I could do it for you, but you can't do it for me. But I had to accept the help. And <clears throat> though it's been a painful time for Carl, too, he was, you know, he's been, had a really stressful time with me, too, running me back and forth to doctors. But the doctor called me and he said, um, you need to get off of the medication now and let's see if the uh, injections work. And he said, what if it doesn't, huh? And I said, well, we'll do just like we've been doing. We've been doing this one day at a time. And I did. I had some of the most painful times from October until March that I couldn't even hardly well, I couldn't stay in bed and couldn't get up. Out, I couldn't, you know, couldn't get up. I'd get up and I'd walk and walk and walk and go back to bed. But finally, I got my tape player. I laid it by the bed, 
and I'd put a tape in it, and I'd play that tape. I never got to hear one tape. I'd go sound asleep. I'd wake up in pain, get up, walk a little bit, put on the tape, lay back down, and put that thing. I couldn't stand it on my head because everything is just like electricity over here. And you lay, I'd lay it over there and turn it up real loud, listen to those tapes. So I've heard many, many talks about how other people have lived in, you know, hard times and with mental problems and all of that kind of stuff in Al-Anon and AA one day at a time, and it sure helped me. And I'm glad to be here, and I don't know if you got anything out of this mess or not, but, uh, you know, I'm just glad that you're here, and, and I had to be here because I had to be with people like you. Thank you.